Right, good morning, everybody. So this morning, uh, this is the last in our series on the Grace Files. So we're going to be closing that series off today. So what we've been doing over the last four or five weeks is we've been looking at a random selection of little encounters from the Gospels where Jesus had an encounter with somebody and he imparted to them grace and truth that transformed their lives forever. And we're going to keep going with that this morning. And our key passage is from 1 John, where it says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Now I want to talk about that for a moment, grace and truth. Because I think in the modern Western church, we've done a really foolish thing. Somehow or other, we have created a split. We've created two separate pathways, two different styles of church. And we've changed grace and truth into grace or truth. So on one hand, we've got, for lack of a better term, we've got the liberal church that is very big into the social outreach arm. They advocate for refugees, they help the homeless, they do all sorts of wonderful advocacy, all sorts of wonderful practical work in the community. Heavy on grace. They tend to be a little light on truth. They're not big on doctrine or theology. They don't really confront the reality of sin. Heavy on grace, light on truth. Then in the other pathway, we've got, for lack of a better term, the more conservative church. Big on truth. Heavy on theology. The right doctrines. We're big on, or they're big on personal purity. That sort of thing. Not so effective as far as helping the community. Not that effective in reaching into society. Big on truth, low on grace. But that's never what Jesus intended. It was never meant to be a choice. Where you're a Christian, now I've got to make a decision. Do I go down the truth pathway or do I go down the grace pathway? It's not truth and grace. Sorry, it is truth and grace. It's not truth or grace. Now, a few verses earlier from our key verse, and Clinton kind of touched on it before, in verse 14, John says, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, we have seen his glory. We've seen God. We've seen his nature. We've seen what he looks like. And when we look at him, what do we see? We see that he's full of, tr- of grace and truth. He's 100% grace. And he's 100% truth. I like what AJ said last week. I can't remember your exact words, but he said something along the lines of, there's no yin and yang. God isn't 50% this and 50% that. He's not a being trying to manage multiple personalities that conflict with each other. And this morning, we're going to, um, if we go to the next slide, we're going to talk about a passage in the Bible, an encounter that I think demonstrates this principle perfectly. That Jesus was 100% grace and he was 100% truth. Now, in a second, we're going to get into it and read this passage, but a few things I need to say about it. So first of all, I just need to let you know that with this passage, there's a little bit of a controversy around it. 
So in my Bible, this passage is in italics. And it has a little note saying that there's some um, controversy. Okay? Now, if you are into the science of textual criticism, you'll know that this passage doesn't occur in some of the really early manuscripts, and then later on it reappears. And so there is some debate over, does this passage belong in John's Gospel? just want to reassure you that there's nothing in this passage that conflicts anything with Scripture. And from what I can gather, there's no debate whether this is a factual account. The debate is just, does it belong in John's Gospel? So I'm going to leave the controversy to people smarter than me. And uh, this morning, we're just going to soldier on uh, and, and, and take this as, as God's word. Now, um, what's interesting about this story is it is very, very popular, very, very well known. Mainly for the famous line where Jesus says to the Pharisees, whoever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. Now in the church, we love this story, we love that line. Now what's interesting is, people outside the church love that line. It gets used a lot. It gets used in politics. It gets used all the time. And I remember, I might need a haircut, this thing won't hold still. Um, <laughs> And I remember once being involved in work in a selection committee with some job interviews, and we had one candidate who was brilliantly qualified, great on paper, but in their history, they had some incidents of being a bit suspect with professional behaviour. Okay? Now, I remember, after all the interviews were done, there was this great heated discussion around whether this person should be considered or should they be eliminated. And there was someone on the committee who I know quite well who is very unreligious, very anti-religious. And they quoted this passage. And they said, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. So basically saying, none of us have got the right to disqualify this person for what they've done. We've all made mistakes. And so it's interesting. Everybody loves this passage. We love it in the church and people outside the church love it as well. Okay, um, let's dive into it. So, you've got your Bible or your device, you're welcome to uh, open up and read along or you're welcome to just read what's on the slides. So we're going to start off with just reading the first four verses in John's Gospel, chapter 8. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So we're going to pause the passage there and have a chat about what's happening. So straight away, when we hear this account being told, straight away a couple of big question marks come up. There's something fishy going on here. Something's not right. If this woman was caught in adultery, that means a man was caught in adultery as well. So the first question is, is where's the dude? Um, <laughs> why isn't he been dragged in beside the woman? 
And we've got all these questions. Was he too important? Was he a mate of theirs? We don't know. But straight away, something's really off in this story. The other thing that is really off in this story is the fact that the Pharisees chose a crowded arena to drag this woman. Okay? There's no need for a public spectacle. If they genuinely wanted to deal with this problem, it could have been done discreetly. And so you get the sense that they don't consider her to be like a real person, a real human, who's got a life that will be forever impacted by this public humiliation. And what we're going to see when we keep reading is the contrast between how Jesus treats this woman and how the religious people treat this woman. So straight away, we've got some big questions. Something's not right here. So we go to our next slide. We're going to keep reading. Verse 5. This is the Pharisees speaking. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So it was suspicious before, but now our suspicions are confirmed. This is totally disingenuous. This is a stunt These are not noble spiritual leaders who are trying to maintain standards for society. These aren't people who care deeply about sin and about family and about division. This is a political stunt. They're trying to trap Jesus. They think what they have here is a gotcha question. Okay, That's what they think. Because if Jesus answers, um, don't be mean, don't stone her, then they can say to everyone... This man is a terrible rabbi. He's contradicting the law of Moses. He's more in favour of Roman law than he is with God's law. Don't listen to him, he's a bad rabbi. If he says, yep, let's go ahead, let's obey the law of Moses, let's stone her, then they can run straight to the Romans and say, this guy is breaking Roman law. It was illegal for the Jewish people to carry out capital punishment. For the most part, they could carry out all their laws and rules, but not capital punishment. And so they think they've got Jesus trapped here. Okay, let's keep reading. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. It's interesting, isn't it? What Big question. What did Jesus write in the sand? And if you were to go home and Google, put into Google, what did Jesus write in the sand? You'll get thousands and thousands of hits. Bloggers and scholars and articles and sermons. This is the only time it's ever recorded in the Bible of Jesus ever writing anything. And we desperately want to know, what 
did he write? And there's lots of theories, so I'm going to go through a couple of them. So one theory is that he was kind of playing head games. He got down and he's doodling. He's drawing stick men having karate fights or something. Okay? And he's just kind of playing with them. He's sort of showing them a bit of contempt that this is, such, this is ridiculous what you're doing, that I'm not even paying attention. Now remember, these are all theories. That's one theory. Another theory is that he wrote the law because there are several references in the Old Testament where the law would be written in the sand. And so one way of thinking that Jesus was fulfilling those Old Testament scriptures by writing in the law. Another very popular theory is based on an Old Testament custom where accusations like this were dealt with in the temple and the priest would write on the sand in the temple tiles the name of who was accused and the law that they'd broken. So one theory is that Jesus knelt down and started writing the name of all those Pharisees and writing next to it the laws that they had broken because that was a custom from the Old Testament. Now, of course, we'll never know. The answer is we don't know. It would be wonderful to know. Um, but all we do know is he did. He, just, he knelt down and he started writing things. Okay, and then we get this famous line, this famous line that everybody knows, not just in the church, but outside of the church as well. Whoever of you is without sin, you throw the first stone. So Jesus knew. He could see the malice in their heart. He knew that this wasn't a genuine attempt to sort out a moral dilemma. This wasn't about trying to interpret the law, trying to work out what God's word meant. This was a callous stunt, using a woman for no other reason than to achieve some political goal. And so their own sin was made obvious, and Jesus calls them out on their hypocrisy. And what's ironic is, at the end of that, they all leave. And the ironic thing is, the only person left with the woman was the one person who was qualified to condemn her and stone her. None of the others met the qualifications. They all had to slink away with their tail between their legs. And now this woman is left with the only person who's qualified to pass judgment. Let's read on, see what Jesus says. In verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What wonderful words. We love to focus on what Jesus said to the Pharisees. This is what I think we need to be focusing on. I love this, I love this question. Where are they? What Jesus could be saying is, Woman, where is the evidence that you have sinned? Because the Pharisees have set up this little court and the evidence was the eyewitnesses, the accusers. The evidence is gone. It's been driven away. And Jesus is essentially saying to her, where's the evidence that you sinned? And her answer really is, there is no evidence. The evidence is gone. This is what Isaiah said. He said, he's talking about God, he said, I will blot out your transgressions and I will remember them no more. 
In the Psalms, David said, he's talking to God, he says, you don't treat us the way our sins deserve. He says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far away you've taken our sin. In the final statement, he says to her, go now and leave your life of sin. So here we see grace and truth. Not just grace, not just truth. There's grace and truth. If Jesus had said to her, I don't, I don't condemn you. You're forgiven. Now go back and live however you like. You live your truth. Whatever lifestyle feels good. That's not grace. Because Jesus knows that a life of sin will only ever end in sadness and hurt, brokenness, pain, disappointment. He says to her, I don't condemn you. You're forgiven. Go now, leave your life of sin. Now, what I think is really, really crucial here is the order of Jesus' words. Jesus accepts her in her sin, in all her brokenness. He forgives her. And then he says, now you need to be transformed. In the church, we sometimes flip that around. We get the order completely wrong. We do what most religions do. We say to people who come to us in their sin, in their brokenness, and we say to them as the church, well, get a haircut. Um, clean your life up. Start, get this rid of your life. Once you've transformed a bit, then come back and then we'll accept you. Then you can be part of our club. So we demand transformation before we'll accept but Jesus shows us the correct order. We accept people where they are, how they are, whoever they are. And then we walk with them to help them be transformed. Now, the question for us is, what do we do with this parable? It's a wonderful parable. It feels good to read it. It's got that irresistible combination of a, a bully getting stood up to, someone, a victim who's powerless, Someone sort of coming in and standing up for them. It's a story we love, or what do we do with it? So for me this week, I've been grappling with a very difficult, uncomfortable question as I've been reflecting on this parable. If we go to the next slide, what I've been asking myself is, if I look in a mirror and I'm really honest, who do I resemble more? Do I resemble the Pharisees or do I resemble Jesus? A couple of things I've been asking myself. When I hear about someone who fails, someone who stuffs up, maybe falls into serious sin, what's my initial reaction? Am I like the Pharisees who want to run and make it public? Run and tell everyone I can, spread the word, let as many people know as I can possibly do? Or am I like Jesus? Am I discreet? actually go to the person and talk to them? Difficult question to answer. What do I do? Do I go to the person and talk to them discreetly or do I talk about them? Because if I talk about them and not to them, I look more like a Pharisee than Jesus. The other question I ask myself, the same sort of thing. When I hear of someone or I see someone who fails, who screws up, who does the wrong thing, falls into sin, is my initial reaction to reach down and pick up a stone because I want to punish them. I want them to suffer the consequences of their stupidity. They need to learn. They need to have a lesson. 
Or is my initial reaction to reach down and help them up again? To try and restore them? Now, as I've thought about this this week, uh, it's been very challenging, very uncomfortable. And I challenge you to ask that question. Look in the mirror. Be honest. Who do I resemble more? Who Who do I reflect more? Typical religion or Jesus, who was full of grace and full of truth. So that kind of brings us to the end of our series on the grace files. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to sing a song. So Harry, if you go to the next slide, I just want to talk a little bit about this song so the worship team, they can come up. And we're going to sing an older song. Now when I think of this song, I was just had my listening to songs on my phone this week and on my playlist there's this song and soon as it came up I thought this woman in adultery she could have written those words and the more I thought about it I thought anyone from our grace series could have written those words I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and I wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean The blind man that Clinton spoke about, he could have written that. Peter, who AJ spoke about, he could have written it. The woman at the well, she could have written those words. In fact, any of us could have written them. Anyone here who loves Jesus, anyone here who's experienced his grace, who's been transformed, we could have written these words. So we're going to sing this song and then we're going to have communion. Mm -hmm.